This is The Guardian. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. A third of students are less than happy about their university choice, new research by EY has revealed. The findings suggest that a digital rethink is essential to meet the expectations of students and staff. Universities can address this by putting the needs of the people they serve at the heart of their digital strategies. Learn more about the future of human-centered higher education at theguardian.com forward slash transforming higher education. This message was paid for by EY. Hello and welcome to the Guardian Football Weekly. The Champions League, Liverpool get a much-needed win against a resolute Ajax side. Joel Matip's last-minute header enough to keep the crisis bat on away until Liverpool next play, which isn't until October. But perhaps for the first time in history, we do need to ask, is Trent Alexander-Arnold vulnerable to the ball in behind him? Elsewhere, Spurs prove that you can't keep winning by playing badly as Sporting nick two injury-time goals to go top of their group. Is there anything sadder than seeing Heung-Min Son having a bad time? Robert Lewandowski's return to Bayern could have been dreamy, but he booted it over the bar as Leroy Issy underrated Sane scores another. Club Bruges have the win of the night in Porto and there's a disappointing night for Atleti. Also, Rory Smith is here. He's written a book called Expected Goals. Dangerous to put that in part three, given his expected departure time is usually some way before the end. We'll round up any other business, including Todd Bowley's plan for Northern Flat Caps versus the Southern London-centric media biases. Just who do the Midlands play for? All that plus your questions. And that's today's Guardian Football Weekly. Adam says, which tradesperson will Rory get up to answer his door to mid-pod this time? Ethan says, has the man that came to Rory's house to look at that fireplace finally gone home? And John said, did Rory get that chandelier fitted? Rory Smith, welcome to the pod. Hello, once again, I will stress that it wasn't a chandelier fitting. It was a man coming to look at a chimney. He didn't move in. That would be weird. (laughs) And we now can't use the fire, which he fitted, which is lovely, because of soaring energy costs. So the whole thing was a waste of everybody's time. (laughs) Really? It's lovely to have you. Have you been on since, Rory? Was that? No, I think I've been banned. All right. Okay, no, you weren't bad at all. We just we just didn't know if you'd finished with the workman. You just hadn't hadn't replied. Barry Glendenning, welcome. Uh, Hi, I'm just curious to know why. Surely putting logs on the fire is is economically more sensible than turning the gas on. Mm -hmm. To be fair, we had a delivery of logs (laughs) through the day and before the pod was recorded. Uh, Mm. I've been more organised this time. The cost of wood is also soaring. Don't know why. Ah, No, we had a man come to fit a gas fire rather than an open chimney so we can't use the gas fire i don't know where um welcome philippe Oclair, by the way welcome oh, thank you very much very much max i mean take the gas out put the wood back in and just go in the middle of the night to your local park chop down a few trees uh mature them in your in your garden you know ripen them <laughs> and in six months time it will be spring and you won't need it so <laughs> that's true. That is the way to look at it. That's a very positive outlook, Philippe. I like that. I don't think this is the week to be chopping down trees in a park. Presumably, <laughs> that is. What could you possibly banned, mean? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, Max. To be fair, Max. I think that's always banned. <laughs> yeah, probably, I think you're not allowed to do that. You're yeah. probably right. It's hard to know. These it's days, correct. I meant. It? I meant collecting dead wood, which is also which is also banned, by the way. Yeah, which happens on this pod a great deal. Um, let's start at Anfield, shall we? Liverpool 2, Ajax 1. Barry, how much did Liverpool need this? Well, after last week's humiliation at the hands of Napoli, it was much-needed win, um, which which came at the death. It was a big improvement on last week's performance, but it couldn't have been much worse, I suppose you could argue. Um, they're still not quite firing on all cylinders. There's still questions over... Trent Alexander-Arnold's static, non-defending. Um, but there were good performances from Joel Matip, who's in for Joe Gomez, who had an absolute shocker last, last week. Harvey Elliott was quite decent. And, uh, yeah, I would say there was much relief at Anfield. 
before we get to the Trent Alexander Arnold question, which I I, I can't really face having again, <laughs> um, they're, they're not quite firing Philippe, are they? And that front three, I, we haven't really discussed how much they miss Sadio Mane yet. I wonder if that is the thing. Well, they they didn't miss the Sadio Mane we saw for Bayern against um, against Barca, no. but that's a different story. I I think that's a little bit of a of a red herring. Um, Diaz has fitted in perfectly. Jota was injured at the beginning of the season. He's only coming back. Darwin Nunez looked really impressive, got suspended. He's coming back as well. I think for them, I mean, the most probably the, the reason to feel optimistic, the real reason to feel optimistic, apart from the result, of course, is the fact that Thiago Alcantara is back and that when he's back, they're a different team. And um, I might have already said that on the pod, but I, not that long ago, I, I did a little... <laughs> Uh, I'm sorry, it's not under quite the level of expected goals, Rory, but I, I did my stats as uh, Liverpool with Thiago, Liverpool without Thiago, number of points per game. And since he's missed a lot of games through injury over the years, uh, you can have something which is quite significant. And and with Thiago, it's um, without Thiago, excuse me, it's 1.86 points per game, which is very low. That's basically seventh place in the Premier League. With him, it's 2.73, which means like you have over 100 points in your champion every year. That's how crucial he is. And it can't be a coincidence that when he came on against Napoli, things got a little bit better or less worse. Um, less worse? Anyway, uh, but they, they got a little, little bit better. And now that he's here, there's certainly more balance. He's absolutely crucial. And... Um, yeah, and so I think crisis averted. To be absolutely honest, I'm not. I, I was never too worried. I don't think there's something existential. Uh, I don't think that there is a seven-year X on uh, Jurgen Klopp. And uh, yeah, yes, I've said what I had to say. Well, well done, Philippe. <laughs> Rory, I was I was there last night. I was sat next to a friend of mine who's an Ajax fan. Who I was such a hipster, a favor to. Of course, of course, you were. Well, he's. I mean, he's Dutch. Okay, he's fair enough. To be <laughs> the, <laughs> Anyone can support whoever they like. I should point out. <laughs> he's not a hipster. He supports. He's a Dutchman who supports the biggest club in Holland. He's the opposite of a. Of he's a, a plastic. <laughs> and it was interesting because we we both spent. I spent the the entire evening thinking that Ajax looked incredibly dangerous, and he spent the entire evening thinking that Liverpool looked incredibly dangerous, which is the kind of experience of of the fan I suppose but he his view was basically that Ajax didn't play as they wanted to and I think the best way of illustrating that was was the goal kicks so they did this thing where Calvin Bassey took the goal kick backwards to the goalkeeper who was a 63 year old man I think <laughs> there's a there's a at the risk of opening my kind of ideas box the Dutch can't produce goalkeepers and it's fascinating their, their, their goalkeeping options for the World Cup are abysmal and they're all in their late 30s. It's, it, there's something really wrong with how the Dutch produce goalkeepers. But anyway, they, that's fine. That, that's, what, that's a valid tactic and it's quite a smart tactic against the pressing team because it draws the press. And the idea is that you draw the press, you break the first line inside your own penalty area and then you can, you can kind of play from there. But every single time, Bassi took the goal kick back to the goalkeeper and the goalkeeper booted it long, and John Matip or Virgil van Dijk won the header. And my friend's view was that th that was partly nerves on Ajax's part, and partly because of the nature of Liverpool's press, just didn't let Ajax get out. And I think that is that is the first the first signal that maybe Liverpool are were, were a little bit more like their old selves. Klopp said after Napoli that um, that there was nothing of themselves in that performance. There were definitely elements of Liverpool. At Anfield last night, I thought they played. They played extremely, not extremely well. I thought they played relatively well for the first hour or so. I think Klopp's changes, where he brought Firmino and Nunez on simultaneously, actually served to unbalance Liverpool a little bit and made them a little bit worse. Um, but the fact that he did it, he threw two strikers on, took off Harvey Elliott and Jota. Um, that suggests that Klopp knew they had to win that game to stand to improve their chances considerably going through in the group. Philippe is completely right. Thiago Alcantara. This sounds very fanboyish. Thiago is a wonderful player to watch. He is just he does things that very few other players do. His the way he moves his body is extraordinary. His ability to to see passes. There were there were two or three in the first ten minutes where he drew a sort of appreciative ooh from the crowd, and it, those players are really precious for whoever they play for. They're really it's 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 wonderful. It's a privilege to watch players like that. But the other one who I think was quite important last night was Jota. Because I think Jota makes that forward line work. And Philippe's right, he's not fully fit. He's still coming back. He did an hour and 65 minutes or so. But he 
he interchanges quite nicely with Diaz. He doesn't drop quite as deep as Firmino. He gives them a, a, a direct threat. There was one chance that he just sort of just kept running with the ball because Jota has this thing where he gets the ball and runs at the goal and sees what happens. And that's quite a useful skill to have in football. And I think his, his return just makes the front line work a, li- a little bit better. But I would agree that I, th- I think it's still a work in progress. There's something not quite coherent about Liverpool. I think Klopp will hope that that kind of puts the idea that the Napoli performance is now the standard to bed and that this is something to build from. Stuart says, at length, could you please discuss Trent AA's recent tracking back for Liverpool and then discuss his potential not tracking back for England? Um, Barry. <laughs> um, what? <laughs> I thought it was interesting um, on BT Sport last night, Rio Ferdinand was quite protective of Trent Alexander-Arnold. I don't think they, they well, certainly in the, the highlight show after the game, they didn't focus on his mistake. They focused on what he did well. And then Rio made the point that when Jordan Henderson isn't there, Trent Alexander doesn't get the protection that he, he normally does. And they were wondering, him and Michael Owen and Jake were wondering how much of Trent Alexander-Arnold's game is based on what exactly Jurgen Klopp tells him to do. Does Jurgen Klopp give him license to not defend as much as, as say, other right-backs might so that he can get forward and provide assists? And that that's an interesting question. We Only Jurgen Klopp or Trent Alexander-Arnold will, will be able to tell us, I suppose. But even so, for the goal, he, he much like in the Napoli game, he he was just static. It wasn't that he was caught high up the pitch or anything. He was where he was supposed to be, but he just didn't move, didn't track the run. And Ajax got in behind, and, and that's where their opener came from. But um, he, he brings a lot to the party, but he's not having a good time for it at the moment, and his high- mistakes are being highlighted. And there are people who think he is a shit defender. I'm not one of them, but... And those people, you know, any time he makes a mistake or is caught out, they hammer it home and it gets hammered home on Twitter. And I, I would imagine Trent Alexander-Arnold gets pretty fed up with seeing these these comments. It's interesting, just in, in the stadium, I've not seen a replay of the goal at all, of any of the goals, I haven't seen any, any highlights other than the Sporting Lisbon highlights. There was no sense in the stadium that that was a, the result of, a, of an Alexander-Arnold mistake. There was no kind of groan. It was... I think that may have been partly because the finish was so spectacular. It was an extra- absolutely extraordinary finish. The speed, the speed with which he turned and, and hit the ball, it it wouldn't have occurred to me watching the game that that was an Alexander Arnold mistake. I will take Jake Humphrey's word for it. If Jake Humphrey tells me something, then I am going to accept it as absolutely true. It's a way to live your life, Rory. Well, it's one way to live your life, at least. It's a high, it's a high performance way to live your life. <laughs> it absolutely the, um, is. But the the, the I think Barry's totally right, though, that there were moments in that game where Trent Alexander-Arnold defended brilliantly. There were a couple of times where he where he he nicked the ball off Stephen Birdvine, where he he covered his the his his runners. I think that he's exposed more than the le- Liverpool's left full-back because the tendency of the opposition is always to attack down that side because it is the side furthest away from Virgil Van Dijk. And so I think both the the right-sided centre half and the right-back tend to get more exposed than than the other side. There's a lopsided attacking emphasis but that said there, ha- there have been moments in the last few weeks where Trent Alexander-Arnold does switch off I don't think anyone pretends that's his strong suit that's not why he's in the team but at the same time that is the sort of thing you can kind of coach I think do you think that, that if you are watching it from a Premier League centric point of view you're going to look at that more than the Ajax attack I guess in this situation you know and I'm, as I say, I haven't seen a replay, so I'm I'm perfectly willing to accept the word of Jake Humphrey's gospel and say that, that, that Trent Alexander-Arnold didn't track back. That's fine. As we've all said, that's a mistake. It's a relatively easily, easily corrected one, but it's a mistake. But ultimately, that goal was about Mohamed Kudus' incredible finish. Mm-hmm. That's, what, that's why that goal happened. That's the ultimate kind of reason that Trent would have made that mistake and a lesser player than Kudus would not have scored and we wouldn't be talking about it. And yet, there is. I just feel that there's this tendency to say that if somebody scores on a on a football pitch, someone has someone is at fault, which is probably technically true, but it's a bit joyless. I, I was actually interested, Rory, that you were hugely impressed with the speed of Mohamed Kudus's turn because watching it, I thought it was really slow. <laughs> <laughs> He's. I, I'm thinking, but 
And I'm I'm doing this thing. Why is Virgin Van Dyke giving him so much time to turn? Because it was like watching an oil tanker, <laughs> and then he absolutely. Quite, I mean, that is quite a <laughs> that's quite a quick oil tanker, I would say. I'm I'm going to move on to Tottenham. Snapper White says, "How are Spurs shit, but also kind of good? I know we lost and were terrible, but I still think we're going to have a good season." And we are solid and have firepower, but play really shit. Is that correct? Or am I just drunk? Um, <laughs> sort of feel. It's a great question. You, you can sort of be feel. correct and drunk, you know, just to be clear. <laughs> 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 Unfortunately, Barry, that is true. Um, uh, um, Philippe, I mean, they haven't been playing brilliantly, Spurs, and they didn't play well. And, you know, and Sporting were better than them. Yeah, uh, That was a really poor performance and surprisingly poor and I think quite a few people are surprised how, how good sporting have been by the way um, maybe you should have uh, kept in mind the way sporting performed in the first game of the group phase where they were absolutely scintillating and um, almost everything good that came from, from, from that game almost all the football was played by sporting and um, what I find quite strange is that it, it's, is there actually a midfield in Tottenham's team I mean, is there one? I mean, I know there are guys who play in that space. Uh, they're very good. I mean, at like little fouls, slowing down the play, tackling people, looking looking really angry. But are they actually any good at building actions, football sequences? It's a good question. Because neither yeah. of them, to be honest, does that. And then when you look at the at the wing backs, okay, Perisic and, and Emerson. I mean, okay, Perisic is, is, is a wonderful player. We all agree on that. Emerson is not necessarily the most creative. He's, he can be quite a handful, and he was actually at times for sporting to deal with. But y y you have got, on one hand, some re remarkably creative and, and efficient players. I mean, Harry Kane is, is very creative. Richard Lisson is, is a super player. And by the way, didn't have a bad game yesterday. I thought he, he was, of, of all the Spurs players, the ones who really looked up for, really looked up for it. Kuluzewski is a very good, very fun player. Son is it's very sad to see sad to see a sad son. We all know that, but there doesn't seem to be anything in between. I mean, I, I'm there is no midfield, and, and the fact is that Sporting actually cut through that midfield regularly. I mean, they were very easy on the eye. I have to say, Sporting were a delight to watch. I mean, the technique, the skill of these players is just wonderful. But Spurs, I mean, really, I'm, I'm, I mean, you know, is there a solution? Do you have the players, Max? Well, I don't know. I don't know what you think, Rory. Do you think if if it was a different manager that would get more out of that midfield? You sort of think Hoy Bieger is a is a destructive player, but Bentancur is a is a looks like a footballer. You know, he's got grace. Whether do, he can do you pass mean the ball, forwards. he's very handsome. Is that what you mean? He's quite handsome, but he's got the you know he moves. You say Tiago's wonderful to moves wonderfully, and I don't want to compare the two. I'm not doing that. But yeah. in terms of grace and someone who looks like he could be a really creative midfielder, I just wonder if anything would make Conte change from being the worst side on the pitch but normally getting a result. No, because he's Italian. I think I think that, that ultimately is is the root of it. I don't want to sound like I'm being xenophobic, but it's basically true that, that if Conte can put a team together that, that can win, I don't think he cares about being pretty. The... <laughs> I find Spurs fascinating because the general rule is that we decide that if you win a lot of games but don't seem to be playing very well, that means you're really good. But there is a flip side to that, and that that's that you're not very good, but you're getting kind of lucky, or you've got, as is probably the case with Spurs, two or three or possibly four extraordinary footballers at the at the, the right end of the pitch, and they will decide games for you. And that's not a bad situation to be in, to be perfectly honest. I don't think you need to be... There's, you know, there's lo loads of different ways to skin a cat, um, which, like get chopping down trees in a park, is is also banned. The um, and you can be destructive and obdurate and faintly unimpressive, and if you get your ball to your three incredibly creative and devastating forwards, you can win lots of football matches. I'm intrigued by the fact that Spurs were taken, kind of taken apart by Sporting a little bit. And I know that the, both goals came in the, in the, in the in injury time but Sporting are a good team I think it's, it's really easy to to over to underestimate Portuguese sides not least just Porto got smashed by Club Bruges last night but you know we tend to th sort of think of to, to dismiss them almost as being kind of Champions League mateweights like they're always there they're quite good games but they're there to be beaten by the English teams I think that's a, that's disrespectful I like the fact that Sporting who obviously have sold 
an entire midfield this summer are continuing to prove my mantra, which is that there are always more footballers and we should remember that as much as possible when we're spending lots of money in the transfer market. <laughs> There'll be more along next year because they just keep coming. There are loads of them, aren't there? It's a really good point. Well, it's in, no, but it's like, it sounds really stupid and I don't want to kind of talk the conversation, but like it, do, it really struck me this summer that, that English clubs every year act as though there will be no more footballers. <laughs> But there are always more footballers. And, you know, you see so Mateus Nunes, and I presume sporting fans were, were devastated to see Nunes and, um, and Joao Palinha go, because they, that, was, that was their central midfield. And then it turns out, actually, they've, they've just got some more. There's more. We've got a couple more in the back. We'll, we'll play them instead. And we'll also take your £70 million, but because we, we've got more footballers. <laughs> so what do you want to do? And yet, we, for some reason, it's the English clubs that we lionise as being, aren't they powerful? But you sort of think, well, actually, these... These clubs, Sporting and Ajax and Benfica and Porto, Bruges, they just keep making loads of footballers. We should probably be admiring them more than the other ones who just keep buying them. But no, I think the fact that Spurs have been outclassed a little bit by Sporting is worrying. But at the same time, with players of the quality that Spurs have, I think Conte's probably right to think what we need to do is stop the opposition scoring and then get the ball to the ones at the top because they will, they will win us games. And Hugo Loris as well might win some games because we should add that if he hadn't been there, it might have been a hiding. And uh, and we have to talk about Marcus Edwards. No, but he, he was abs- uh, he faded in the last twenty minutes, but until then he had been absolutely wonderful and actually showing a lot of the things that um, that Spurs were missing. And um, and you know not just that amazing run uh, which Loris saved with his um, right foot miraculously. Uh, but he was absolutely, um, uh, absolutely brilliant in everything he did. The proof of that, you know, that a player who was thought surplus to requirements at Spurs, when he was what eighteen at the time, seventeen or eighteen, has uh, decided, okay, I'll try my luck abroad, and has made a, a real success of it. And and what's going to happen is that probably in a, in a few months' time an English club is going to come back and try to bring him back to the Premier League, which perhaps he should never have uh, left. But um, there you go. And uh, that's really... I mean, no, he was, he was, he was absolutely magnificent. And, and not just that run. He was magnificent throughout. Sorry, Barry. I just wanted to add to what Philippe said about Edwards, which is that... And this ties into that there always been more footballers. We also should, should remember that players develop at different times and different rates that Edwards was a wonder kid they thought that he was going to be something really special at Spurs and I think it from memory it was kind of stuff away from the pitch that that meant the club eventually decided he wasn't progressing as they wanted which is a legitimate decision to make maybe he wasn't going to get the chances to play the sort of football that he needed to play to develop in that environment and it is it's a really heartening story but it's also a little bit of a cautionary tale that just as a player's not made it in 19 doesn't mean they're done they just need a different chance in a different place. Uh, Barry, you can realise your potential at 47. You you never know. I think Barry has already realised his I'm 49, potential. Max. Uh, you're 49? <laughs> oh, well, many congratulations. Yes. Two birthdays this week. Um, uh, I drank Frankfurt one in Marseille, also in this group, which leaves it pretty open. Um, and Except for Marseille. Except for Marseille. It leaves it pretty open, except for Marseille. Yeah, no, I mean, you could... Uh, I, I think some, some Marseille fan put a, a screenshot of... Marseille's results in the Champions League over the last 10 years. And it was one of the most depressing things I've ever seen. It was a sea of red and one green line, green for victory, red for, for, for defeats. And it was a sea. It was the Red Sea. It's, um, it's very, very frustrating. And it's going to end up in tears again, and, um, which, is, which is very sad because they were actually terrific against Spurs until that sending off, weren't they, Max? Mm, but there you go. Will. It's Marseille. It's They're Marseille. Fail again. But they are, they are quite good domestic. This is, has this not been their best ever start to a lead-down season? Yeah, they're very good at the moment. Absolutely. And, you know, the Tudor seems to have found a way to make them play. Um, oh, dear, but in Europe, and, um, you know, it's still the only French club to have won Champions League. Uh, in in interesting circumstances, it's true. <laughs> right, <indeed. laughs> that'll do. I won't go any Windsor. further. That will do for part four. <laughs> Doesn't matter how you win, does it, Philippe? You, know, you don't care about that sort of thing. Um, uh, that'll do for part one. Part two, uh, we'll start with Bayern beating Barcelona. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. It starts the same way. Can I tell you a secret? It would start off with a random girl and just say, hey, hun, I'm going to tell you some secret now. Please don't mention it to anybody. But it quickly escalates. It just spread like a wildfire. I still sleep with clubs next to my bed. I didn't know how far this was going to go. People seldom show their true selves online, but one man... He's taken it much further. I was terrified. Who is the cyberstalker behind these messages? He actually said to me, good luck proving it's me. And why is he sending them? Because he became more and more isolated, he just went within himself even further. Do you punish someone for acting out whatever is going on in their mind that we don't understand? And if I could just turn back the clock... From The Guardian, I'm Shirin Tyler, and this is Can I Tell You a Secret? A story about obsession, fear, and the lives we lead online. Listen to all episodes from Friday 23rd of September. Welcome to part two of The Guardian Football Weekly. Bayern 2, Barcelona 0. Philippe, this game was... Great. Barca could have had a hatful in the first half. Lewandowski missing a sitter for him. And then Bayern just sort of went, I'll sod this and scored twice. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Barcelona could have scored a hatful and Lewandowski could have scored a hat trick in the first 45 minutes. Uh, I mean, two of the chances were pretty difficult ones, to be absolutely honest. But the first one, you thought, hmm, that's the kind of chance that normally he would, he would put in. But anyway, um, it didn't seem to matter at the time because Bayern looked really disorganised and... Uh, and they again, they didn't seem to have much of a midfield. Um, Sunny was running in dead ends. Um, they didn't look particularly threatening. Whereas Barcelona, on the other hand, looked remarkably balanced. There was a lovely rhythm to their play. Pedri was stupendous. I mean, so good. He's so, so good. good. And the whole of the team was actually uh, and had a beautiful rhythm about it. But they didn't score. And um, you could say that Nagelsmann had made um, one mistake. Uh, before the game started, which is to put Sabitza in this midfield position. But if he made one mistake, he corrected it, and at halftime he, he brought brought in brought on excuse me Leon Goretzka, who had an immediate impact, and Bayern were transformed. I suppose that also goals change games, you know, and um, the fact that they scored twice, uh, very you know within what three minutes, uh, Luca Hernandez. Uh, really lovely header from from mm-hmm. a, a phase of play that nobody ever scores from, Barry, corner kick. Um, had been completely forgotten by Marcos Alonso. Lovely glancing header, 1-0. And then afterwards, I mean, uh, Sané goal, uh, which was absolutely wonderful in his construction, even though I thought that it's impossible Jules Koundé is going to get to that ball. He's going to be able to, to hook it off the line. But no, there was just enough power on it to trickle in, and then that's 2-0. And it, it had been, Bayern had been transformed. Uh, doesn't mean they're absolutely perfect, far from it. And in fact, it's a kind of game which um, reminded you or showed you both what these teams can do when they really have a head of steam, build up a head of steam, but also that they are far from the finished article. Bayern in the first half and Barcelona in the second, where they were just not, weren't there, actually. 
and uh, but it was yeah it was it, it was a cracking game to to watch and which had the kind of intensity that you don't necessarily associate with a, a group phase you know game for two teams were surely are, are going to go through well surely actually we don't know yeah I mean Inter Inter have a say in it I guess Rory don't they but it's interesting Philippe mentioned in the WhatsApp group that the Barcelona bench. I mean, as others have pointed out, they're very much living for today, aren't they, Barcelona, and not worrying about tomorrow. They've got a real hedonistic street, and I think that, you know, I don't think fans need to worry about selling off all of your future revenue streams as long as you can sign a French central defender. Why would you bother worrying about that? What's the point? Just, you know, it's it's about now, isn't it? Let's live in the moment. Well, you know, there's a climate apocalypse coming. Let's just, let's just, let's just embrace it. Do you know what I mean? The, the irony is that for all... The, for all that what Barcelona did in the summer was clearly ridiculous and and like morally questionable, let alone financially. Um, it seems to be working. They're they're a lot better, and you can. I, I think we sh- we shouldn't rule Inter out completely. Does Inter aren't a bad team by any stretch of the imagination? But you can see both of those teams going through and fair wind, kind draw. Barcelona could easily make like the semis of the Champions League. I don't I don't think they're they're balanced enough or complete enough to win it. But you could see them. Yeah, it, it, obviously, if they run into Manchester City in the last sixteen, then maybe they have a problem. But if they if they don't, that there's no reason why they couldn't go quite deep in the competition. They might, they should run Real Madrid relatively close in in La Liga, partly just because Lewandowski will just score goals against the lesser lights of, of La Liga. Lewandowski, as he did in Germany, as he would in England, will just score loads of goals. Um, so it, it, there is a chance that that Barca have have kind of played Russian roulette and and found the one that's empty is that how russian roulette works i think there are five empty five are empty <laughs> yes you don't want to go far i mean it's a, you you're really you're really living on the edge if you play russian roulette with five bullets in the chamber <laughs> rory <laughs> <laughs> but i mean that bench by the way max we said talk about the bench but who was on it uh, jordi alba uh, gerard piquet um fatty ferran torres uh, memphis depay frank Essien, and frankie de jong <laughs> yeah it's just it's ridiculous good. It is. So we think those two will go through. Inter did win uh, in Pilsen, 50-year-old Edin Dzeko scoring a lovely side foot pass. Um, no Lukaku, he's injured. Lautaro Martinez was dropped. Um, they've got a doubleheader with Barca, which you sort of think will decide who comes second. Uh, Simon says, a couple of minutes on Bruges, demolishing Porto. 4-0 away would be nice. Some great goals. They kept attacking from a long-time listener who spends two hours, 200 kilometres a day commuting by car. It's very grateful to have you guys to keep me entertained. I'm currently based in Belgium and now have a Belgian passport thanks to the stupidity that is Brexit. Congratulations to you, Simon. This, uh, Barry, was a was a great performance from Bruges and completely unexpected. Was it completely unexpected? Um I, I had them down to win in my otherwise utterly unsuccessful coupon. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I know they were outsiders, but I, I thought they played quite well last week. And mm-hmm. But it was a remarkable performance. And uh, I, I, Porto just looked completely shell-shocked. Um, kept getting in behind them. And, and Porto had no answers whatsoever. And it was a bit of a surprise, not least because they were at home. I mean the thing as well as they they keep producing footballers they they've lost their best player. There are loads of footballers, Philippe. That's yeah, just the, there are loads. Charles de Catalera has gone to has gone to Milan, and you would think he was so important. You think they're going to oh my, they're going to suffer so much, and but they've kept Hans van Aken, who is very very important for for them, uh, and they keep producing new players. And um, I mean I didn't see all of the game myself, but I asked a friend of mine who did, and he said that Chief Fournil was quite generous to Porto. Which is what really? I like how we're I like how we're sort of subletting pod appearances. So Rory uses his mate watching Ajax. So it's very hard with all these games at the same. Well, time. Well, you can't make the... yourself an opinion. You know, I I watched like ten minutes worth of highlights, <laughs> yeah. and I, I I thought I knew somebody who was there. I said I just asked him, you know, what was it like, and he said Porto were terrible, and Bruges were wonderful. Matt, you're criticising <laughs> yeah. our high quality journalism. Just Absolutely asking our friends right. what happened. That's that's how this business <laughs> works. But it's hard. I mean, it's Bruges. Bruges is a is a difficult story because, on the one hand, you want them to get through because Bruges is a lovely place. It's a great spot for a for a Champions League knockout tie. But on the other hand, that is possibly the ugliest stadium in Europe. It's it's a really not pleasant experience to go to the stadium. The city, wonderful. The stadium, less so. But it's it is a heartening story because. 
when was the last time like a Belgian team had a run in the Champions League? And this competition isn't just for the Italians and the Spanish and the Germans and the English. Like it's for it's for everybody. So it's we should all be getting behind Club Bruges. Um, uh, also in this group, Atleti lost 2-0 at Leverkusen. Not had a great start to La Liga. Seventh after five games. Play Real Madrid on Sunday. Uh, Sid, I think, is joining us tomorrow. Very, yeah, never, you know, two blue ticks. Silence. So, you know, we all hope he'll turn up. Um, let's talk about Graham Potter's first game in charge of Chelsea tonight, home to RB Salzburg. Actually, let's not talk about that as much as talking about this question from Lucas. Thoughts on Todd Bowley's idea for a North v South super game that will fund the rest of the pyramid. Um, uh, Barry, this is sounds like a great idea to me. Well, it's one of those things an American comes out with and you immediately dismiss it out of hand because it's been suggested by an American and you kind of think, who does he think he is coming over here telling us how to to play our football? And then, so rather than do that, I sort of was thinking about it for a while to think, are there any benefits to this North v South All-Star game? And I can't think of any whatsoever. He He seems to think it would raise a lot of money which would trickle down to uh, the pyramid. That wouldn't happen. Um, he he cited, I think, the the baseball Super League or All-Star game is raising 200 million. I looked up ticket prices for the this year's baseball All-Stars game and it was uh, the cheapest were $225, rising to 7,750 bucks. So that wouldn't even, you know, if you sold them at that cost, which money people wouldn't pay, uh, that wouldn't come close to raising 200 million. So you're going to be needing money, presumably, from broadcasters. Would they be interested? Probably not. Would there be fan enthusiasm? I doubt it. So it seems like a pretty daft idea to me. I'll interject at this point, because I I suspect I know what Philippe's going to say. I think that this in itself is a stupid idea. Because why would you do it north versus south? How would you incorporate all of those Aston Villa players? Um, obviously, as Barry says, they wouldn't just give the money to somebody else. In a way, I wonder if Bowley was just trying to spitballing and he was saying, look, if you want to generate funds for the pyramid, you could do other stuff such as this. There is something very American about buying, spending 2.5 billion quid on a football club and then being like, well, you, you guys are doing this business wrong. Let's do it the way we do it with our sports that aren't as popular. But I, I I do. There is part of me that thinks that football is a little bit too resistant to, let's call it outside the box thinking. That this idea isn't good. It is conceivable that some sort of similar idea might be quite good, and we shouldn't necessarily shut ourselves off to that possibility. The, there's as Klopp said last night. You know, when are you playing this game? And how are you kind of insuring it? Because what if the players get injured? That That's not going to be very popular. Well, you, you replace the community shield, which is doing exactly the same thing, and then when it goes to charity, but you, you name it, I don't know, North v South, and you make a complete pig's ear of it. But if you if you suggested the community shield now, and the community shield is, is a perfectly sensible idea, the lead winners play the cup winners, not a problem at all, to, as the sort of curtain raiser to the season. But if you suggested it now, there would be loads of people going, huh, especially if an American suggested, huh, stupid Americans coming along here suggesting things. But some that it, there there is a possibility that some form of all-star game might might be quite fun. Maybe don't replace the Community Shield with it. Maybe replace um, Soccer Aid with it. That might work. Well, I was going to say, don't we already have it in Soccer Aid? <laughs> <laughs> as long as there's room for that guy who's friends with Robbie Williams, then I'm on board. Johnny Wilkes. What about if it was Northerners? It, it was like you went back to your roots. So we had Northerners sort of all saying A up to each other and coming in on a giant cooling tower with wheels against Southerners who are sort of dressed as soft, you know, whatevers. Dandies. Bankers, yeah, exactly. Or just Dick Turpin. Was he Southern? I don't know. <laughs> like, No, I think Dick Turpin, I think he, I think he was an economic migrant. <laughs> Dick, Dick Whittington... And Dick Turpin, were they not, Dick Turpin was a highwayman, wasn't he? Right. Dick Whittington was an economic migrant, so he was probably northern. Right. So who's the southern? They all dress like the the southern Reese Moggs. You get lots of southern yeah. footballers. He's from Somerset. That's pretty southern. The Mogger is 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 Somerset. Yeah, that's pretty southern, isn't it? It's not spiritually, and the, the south spiritually means the southeast. Oh, Bristol right. is it? Bristol is psychologically in the north. I think okay. that's important. To point out. Right. Somerset the, is not in the north, is it? I mean. I, I mean, honestly, guys, honestly, I've never heard so many 
oh god, provincial cliches and everything. Bloody <laughs> hell! And also, and look yeah. at him, the native, the nativist here, Max Rushton. I'm looking yeah. at you. You were yeah. born. You could be raised. I could. You could be born in in Paris, Sierra Leone, Tokyo, yeah. uh, Bogota, and still be a northerner. For Christ's sake, can't you? Shame on yeah, you. Yeah, but you can't, you can't play in my game. You can't play in my game. <laughs> Tell you what we do is the Northerners play the Southerners. The winner plays the Foreigners. There you go. How about that? Hey. Well, that, that wouldn't better? be a very very evenly balanced game. <laughs> <because> I think, <laughs> upsettingly to Jacob Rees-Mogg, the Foreigners would win. <laughs> probably um, would. But I think the, the reaction to, to the idea has been really telling. That, that, that there, there is a format. There is a way of, making, of doing new stuff with football. And... The fact that Bowley suggested, yeah, something that's clearly flawed, deeply flawed, but that the, the the fact the reaction has been so intensely kind of, how dare you? It's not just kind of snickering that wouldn't really work. It's how dare you do this? I mean, even I saw Jan Arda Fjortoft say that, you know, he's he's not taken long to, to to not understand English football. Todd Bowley understands English football perfectly well. He spent a load of money on players then sacked his manager. That is exactly, there's nothing more <laughs> English football than that. I love the way you said Todd Bowley because it makes me think somehow he's related to Basil Bowley, you know? Yeah. You know, maybe. Well, maybe he is. Really Bowley. Yeah, and Claude <laughs> Bowley and everything. But more seriously, uh, I think as well when um, Bowley, um, Todd, is blowing hot air like this, he's also blowing a smokescreen uh, by making people think he's some kind of, um, you know, Ted Lasso-like American owner, doesn't know that the ball is round, all this nonsense. He knows exactly what he's doing. And what is really important in his case is what he says apart from this crazy proposal, which, by the way, is not crazier than the 39th game that the PL had uh, in its uh, in his cupboard for a while. Um he, he he basically says that he's in favour of multi-club ownership and that he wants to follow a model with Chelsea, which will be not unlike that of the City Football Group. Now, that's basically the death of football as we know it, which is, by the way, has already started. The agony has already started. But then you have somebody who says, you know, has absolutely no problem to say that. He's in it for the money, guys. Chelsea, Chelsea fans, he doesn't like Chelsea. He doesn't care about Chelsea. He's in it here to make business work, and he will do. And But when he talks about these crazy ideas, in a way, he makes us forget about who he is, what he stands for, who his partners are, and what his ambitions are. And I, I have a big problem with that. And I, with us, for being stupid and, and seeing the smoke screen and not seeing what's behind it. And just to let you know, Philippe, I absolutely, when you say us, you could just be pointing right in my face because I just wanted a two-minute funny chat about Northerners and Southerners. And thank (laughs) thank you for putting me straight. That'll do for part two. Part three, part three, we'll talk about Rory's book. Do you love anime, gaming, movies, and discovering how your favorite pop culture affects everything you do? Then join us on Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. Every week you can listen in while we break down the latest pop culture news and dish on what new releases we can't get enough of. Whether you love movies. I'm going to tell you all about the uh, hopeful 4K re-release of Tron Legacy that happens. (laughs) (laughs) I'm right there with you. Or music. The music in this show is absolutely incredible. Or anime. And under this mask is... Another mask. <laughs> you can discover your new favorites right here on The Anime Effect. Listen every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts, and watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or on the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. A third of students are less than happy about their university choice, new research by EY has revealed. The findings suggest that a digital rethink is essential to meet the expectations of students and staff. Universities can address this by putting the needs of the people they serve at the heart of their digital strategies. Learn more about the future of human-centered higher education at theguardian.com forward slash transforming higher education. This message was paid for by EY.
Welcome to part three of the Guardian Football Weekly. Rory, you've written a book. It's called uh, Expected Goals. I tweeted yesterday you've written a book about stats. And the comedian and listener Tony Coward said, I misread that as a book about stoats and now I'm disappointed. Um, it is not, Rory, we should point out, a book of stats. It's not just a long list of the high-intensity sprints of all the midfielders since the Premier League began, is it? No, there are no equations. There are no graphs. Uh, there's no algorithms. There's no. There's not really any any science stuff at all. You're not selling it well, Rory. It's, well, here, here comes the shill. It's a book about people because ultimately all revolutions are about people. The ideas matter, obviously. The the concepts that drive them, the passion that drives them, but ultimately they're put in place by people. And the story of data in football is a story about people. And actually, we don't, in the same way that we don't, perhaps we do slightly more now, sort of think about how that chicken ended up on our plate or like who designed our pants. When we see how many, you know, passes Harry Kane completed or how many sprints Adam Lalana did. We don't think about who's actually doing it. And you begin in the Philippines with a guy whose job it is to watch a football match and just notate everything that has happened. Yeah, which 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 actually came as kind of news to me because I think we we all probably imagine that that data is generated by computers or, or robots or algorithms or something. But in its in its rawest form, there are data farms largely in the global south. Um where people are paid, to be honest, pretty good wages. I mean, they're, they're obviously located in places like Laos and the Philippines because labour is cheaper there. But I think mostly the data providers pay pretty good wages for those markets. Um, there, there's a, a moral question there, I think, that, that is too big for me to go into. But there are people in, in the Philippines, they're called taggers, they'll have different names all over the world, um, whose job it is to go into work every day, watch a football match, and I can't even imagine them pressing the space bar, but I think it's probably more complicated than that. And every time someone passes it, they tap a button. Every time, every time someone ta- tackles, they press a button. And that is your raw form of data. There is, and that, yeah, that, that is the, the first, the opening scene of the book. And it's, I think that kind of illustrates the fact that at the root of all of this are are humans. It's not. It's not a story about just just about numbers. Uh, years ago, um, uh, one of the runners at Sky, he said he was doing a game and he was in charge of the possession stats, and his mind wandered. And then he heard Martin Tyler and Andy Gray or whoever going, "Blimey, Blackburn Rovers have had ninety percent possession over the last ten minutes." And he was like, "Oh shit, I've just haven't pressed the button and spent the rest of the game <laughs> evening it up." Which I presume it's it's sort of got more accurate than that. I guess I like, a whole part of this debate where he is about sort of proper football men versus analytics and this sort of meeting of these, of, you know, Ron manager and then sort of someone with a PhD in the Poisson distribution and that kind of clash. Yeah, and that, that I think was the book that I was expecting to write. But I think the, as I sort of spoke to people and heard their stories and started to, to kind of piece a narrative thread together and obviously there's lots of different ways you could tell this story there's lots of different things have happened at lot, lots of different times I think it's a little bit more nuanced than that I, football has been resistant on certain levels to to the arrival of data but I think there was a big change in the in the, ni- in the late 90s that's really significant and maybe was one of those things that went went under the radar a little bit which is that not only does the world shift technologically so you have the early kind of advocates of data were using VHS tapes, which, you know, children will have to ask their parents to explain. Aren't they making a comeback like vinyl? I, I'm not sure the quality is there, to be honest. <laughs> the, um, well, Betamax then. Betamax, maybe, is the future. <laughs> but the you, you then have the invention in kind of 1997, 98, the invention and widespread use of DVDs, and that changes everything along with the rise of the internet. So when Opta started, Duncan Alexander told me this wonderful story about in their first office in the heart, in the middle of the dot-com boom, they they were this internet startup effectively that had one computer that was t- that was connected to the internet, and they the employees had to and this is Duncan's quote had to queue up like villagers at a well to use it, <laughs> and they, and it, you know you there's a lot of criticism of football for being backwards looking for not being as 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 kind of progressive as baseball in particular for being conservative and and reactionary but ultimately until 20 years ago the technology just didn't exist to do any of this stuff this this revolution could not have happened sooner it's not it wasn't possible um and the other thing that i think is really important and really interesting is i think there was a big cultural shift among football fans and to an extent players and coaches and stuff in the late 90s as well and and 
credit for that, credit or blame, I guess, lies with, with FIFA, with football manager, championship manager, and with, with fantasy football. That I think that changes the way that people interact with, with football and numbers. So you bring up a generation of fans who, without really realising it, have internalised the idea that you can assess a player's worth in numerical form. And that means that by the time Prozone and Opta start kind of pumping out data into football, into the wild, Opta was a was a media focused company at first. The Observer were the first people to run the Opta index in the in the late nineties. You have a generation of fans, I guess, who are in some way conditioned and programmed to understand what they're trying to do. Even if, you know, a lot of the data was was very scratchy, it was based on on a fairly amateurish production of it. It it wasn't what what practitioners now would call clean. You had people who thought, actually, do you know, there is potential there is potential value in this. And again, I think if that comes along ten ten years sooner, that doesn't work because people would be like, well, what's this? So the what one thing I found really funny was that Graham Kelly, the former chairman of of the FA, who people will remember for resembling a turkey, that. In, in, in about 2000, he wrote a column in The Independent in which he laid the, the blame squarely on America for inventing the concept of the assist. So his view was that it was only with the 1994 World Cup that we started talking about the assists. You know, Roberto Baggio got the assist. I checked with my dad, who is 80, and, he, and I said, did you think about assists when you were watching Leicester in the 50s? And he said, we didn't call them that, but like we knew who set up the goals. Like we hadn't, <laughs> yeah. It's not like we hadn't, not like we hadn't noticed who played the pass. Like that was a thing. You you maybe wouldn't have said he got the assist, but you'd have said, well, you know, Ted, whatever, got the you know set up the goal. Like that is a concept that football had, and it was just in 1994 that we gave it a name. And I think there's a lot of that that is threaded through the rise of data. That these are concepts that are really intuitive to football. They're just being given names and a sort of scientific grounding that makes them more valuable. So I, to me, that's a really long answer, but to me that the idea that football is resistant to these ideas isn't quite true. I think football understands a lot of these ideas. It just, it takes a little bit of time to realise exactly what's going on, that maybe it's not quite as alien as it as as it believes. And expected goals is the best gauge of that to me because expected goals is this thing that loads of people hate and say has no value but it's literally just in fact i think we had a tweet about it that someone said the only stat that matters is is goals and shots and chances all expected goals does is say this is how many chances they had and how good they were that's literally all it does it's a really sort of it's something that football fans do automatically every time they watch their team play it's just giving it a number when it comes to the the taggers right um, so I, I know how they work, for example, for in-play gambling. You know that's my specialty. And but what they what they tag is very simple. In fact, we could all do it with the minimum with we have the software. It's things such as corner kicks, fouls, all these things. It's very very basic. To which degree of sophistication have we now got when it comes to the data which are being collected? Like for example, um, you, you will. And, and you will monitor your players at, in training just as much as you monitor them in games, obviously. And if you're looking at their ability to uh, repeat sprints, short-intensity sprints, for example, uh, are there actually, do they, uh, are they geared in a way that um, scientists can look at their f- muscles and the way they react? And as it, are they becoming bionic, basically? <laughs> No, I mean, I think, and, and yeah. as they became bionic, and then it's all fed in a gigantic AI machine, and uh, with a few people operating them. I mean, are we already that far, or am I exaggerating it? I, I I don't know to what extent the AI is is developed. That is that is one of the next two great leaps. I think the use of AI, and I there are companies out there working on on programs that use AI to scout for players, and certainly the. The physical data, I think, is quite advanced that they have. Obviously, everything is done with the GPS vests on. That will download a load of information to the coaching staff and to the sports science departments. And I think, yeah, I think they can now certainly work out players' ability to tolerate repeat loads. That, that I think, is 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 happening. I suspect that has been happening for a while. Um, they all go in it pretty much every day now and have a saliva test and that tests hydration there are ways of testing their the the strain that's been put on their muscles you'll get bespoke tailored training regimes and in terms of the the on the on the ball events the sophistication for the companies that are providing data to teams is 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 pretty high so 
Impact, which is a German company who specialise in this in this metric called pet called packing, which is a measure of how many players each of your actions takes out of the game, um, which is a, a kind of corollary to the key kind of the key metric that teams use, which is a version of something called expected possession value, which is a way of measuring how much more likely it is that your team scores a goal for every decision that a player makes on a pitch. That is the gold standard of, of metrics. I can't say this with any certainty, but I would imagine that the physical data is even more sophisticated. I think that the stuff that they know about the players' bodies is pretty remarkable. Rory, I found it quite interesting that uh, you make the point a lot of players now, high-profile players, are using analysts to try and figure out which club would be best suited to them, a new site. Bamford, Solanke, Nathan Redmond, Rashford, Raheem Sterling. Is is that increasingly common? Yeah, so Sterling brought in um, an analyst when he was negotiating his contract with Liverpool in whatever year that was uh, because Liverpool's pay structure worked at the time on positions. So your centre-forward had a, was effectively in a higher pay band than your... Was left. it based on scuttling runs? Because then in, he's got a great, great chance for him. <laughs> the um yeah i mean it's, his x struttle is extremely high <laughs> the um the and i think liverpool were classifying sterling as a winner but sterling's people wanted to prove that he was actually playing more as a number 10 which would allow them to set, to then go to liverpool and say well actually instead of 150 grand a week it should be 170 so they brought in an analyst for that i think that that was very early on i don't think that was happening much at the time the best example is kai havertz who um who, when he was at Bayer Leverkusen, had his pick of clubs in Europe, obviously all the big teams uh, in England and Spain beating a path to his door. And his his representatives went to to an, an analytics firm and, and asked them to kind of basically assess the way that each of these teams played. And they figured out that Havertz did most of his damage in that kind of false nine, number 10 role. And that meant that he needed to occupy certain spaces. That's where he was at his best. And they effectively ruled out teams who had diminutive Argentinian number 10s already operating in those spaces just they figured well that means he won't be able to shine and I think that is that's another frontier of it that that maybe is re- still relatively underexplored is that this is something that can that can empower players as well I know that World in Motion which is an an agency in England and is now sort of sees itself as the largest independent agency outside of the big conglomerate agencies they have an analytics team because the, they need to know what their players are doing, how they're performing, how they're performing within their within their clubs, and crucially, what the teams that want to sign those players might want them to do. That is information that is crucial for a player as they kind of plot their career path. So I, th- I think that is something we'll see grow more and more. Only time for one more question, and it's hard to know which to ask, but I feel the most important one is, do we need to rethink and rebrand Sam Allardyce. Yeah, do you know, I had a conversation with a friend yesterday uh, to cite another friend. I have so many friends, it's really quite impressive. The, yeah, um, no, good for you. Well done, Rory. Um, the, <laughs> but he, he, he'd he also read the book and he sort of said that, that you could actually pitch. Have you seen the um, the trailers for the Daniel Radcliffe Weird, Weird Al Yankovic movie? No, I haven't. So Daniel Radcliffe's done a, done a movie with, with Weird Al, um, the spoof pop icon, which is a it's a biopic, but it's not true, and it looks genuinely quite funny. I quite like Weird, Weird Al, and it looks genuinely quite funny. And I think you could probably do a similar thing to Sam Allardyce because Sam Allardyce, if he wasn't Sam Allardyce, would be being played by Brad Pitt in a movie, because he is an, an incredibly important kind of football modern footballing pioneer. Which is a ridiculous thing to say because he's Sam Allardyce, but Allardyce is at the yeah. is at the forefront of the sports science revolution. Um, he did some early on. He did some incredibly clever stuff with data, with relatively raw and kind of unformed data. Allardyce did some really clever practical stuff, and people, you know, at the, who consider themselves to be the kind of the forefront of analytics now would scoff at it. But Allardyce not only kind of investigated where goals came from, which is really important, and then kind of built teams to to deliver that, but he kind of took the he took the next step, which a lot of managers didn't really do at the time. So he he worked out that corners are quite a cheap source of goals. Um, and he worked out, right, so do we need in-swingers or out-swingers? And he, I, he decided that one of them was better than the other. And then he realised, well, actually, there's lots of corners that don't end up in goals. So what happens to the ball then? And so he looked at where the ball lands when you take a corner and it gets cleared. And he put players in those positions. And that sounds really simple and it sounds really basic, but no one had done it before. And it's that's a really sort of... 
that's a really smart insight. It's a bit of really smart coaching. And I think there is a world in which you could probably make a movie in which Sam Allardyce is the hero of modern football. And you can maybe make a case, it sounds like it's a little bit sort of deliberate polemicist, but you could probably make a case that apart from certainly Wenger, probably Guardiola, and because you have to say it, Ferguson, Allardyce is the most influential manager in, in modern English football, which is really astonishing and quite quite upsetting and I, 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 it's, I'm halfway through I think it's fascinating the, the early stuff about VHS tapes being driven from Southampton to Leeds and the number of people that sort of fell into this without really knowing what was going to happen and, and where it's got to in such a quick space of time is very interesting and so uh, and so you know go and buy it um, it's called Expected Goals and get it where you get books um, run out of time for any other business really but Peter says long time Sydney based listener uh, you've soundtracked my London marathon training for the last few months um, any chance of some encouraging words from Philippe's dulcet tones in part three the ideal motivation to keep going at 20 kilometres running for a cystic fibrosis charity a condition my two brothers Jonathan and Barnaby had and have Football Weekly was a shared love with Jonas while he was alive and I appreciate the many years of joy you've given us. Football truly brings people together in a special way. Go on then, Philippe. Peter is running the London Marathon and he wants to run it to you. Presumably just saying, Rabio is Rabio is Rabio" over and over again for four hours or however long it's going to take him. Well, it could be a mantra, I suppose. And uh, yes, Rabio is Rabio is Rabio is Rabio is Rabio is Rabio. And you could start uh, saying it to yourself and, and have your pace. <laughs> Going every rabu, and I'm trying to imagine you running at the moment. Rabu is rabu is rabu is rabu is rabu. So just keep it at the same pace because that will enable you to find your rhythm, and and therefore to keep as much as possible of your of your balance, and and your body will feel good, and will be with you all of the way to the finish line. Thank you for your for listening to us, and thank you for for trusting us, and uh, and good luck. So beautifully done. So I brought a tear to my eye. Uh, and that'll do for today's podcast. Thank you, Barry. Thanks. Uh, thank you, Rory. No workman this time. No workman. <laughs> it's very kind of you. You were flogging a book when the workman arrived, so you probably just didn't answer the door, <laughs> did you? Cheers, Philippe. Thank you very much, Max. Uh, Football Weekly was produced by Joel Grove. Our executive producer is Danielle Stevens. We'll be back tomorrow. This is The Guardian.